before I, um, before I jump into Ephesians chapter 5, um, I wanted to take a minute and kind of set up a framework, if you will, of how we should view this chapter in Ephesians. And I want to do it with a somewhat unconventional kind of way. Um, lately, I've been reading Leviticus after I was challenged with the idea that the Gospel of Luke, if you were to follow the story of Jesus, you would see a direct overlay to the book of Leviticus. And what I mean by that is, um, if, you, if you read through the book of Leviticus, some of us are like, well, this, this is kind of a boring, dry book, talks about a lot of clean things and unclean things, and, and he goes through this list of things like unclean bodily fluids, uh, unclean skin diseases, unlawful sexual relations. Um, and, and then if you look at the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus doing something rather amazing. And Luke is, is organizing it in such a way so that we will see something that I think is really mind-blowing. Because if you look at the, the unclean bodily fluids from Leviticus 12 and 15... And then match that up with the story of Luke 8, 40 through 56, the, the woman that's, that's pressing in with the issue of blood, that, that's one of those unclean bodily fluids. You, you've got the unclean skin diseases in Leviticus 13, and then in Luke chapter 5, you have Jesus reaching out and touching the, the, leper, the, the man with leprosy. You've got the unlawful sexual relations in Leviticus 18, and then in Luke 7, 36 through 50, you see Jesus... Uh, forgiving the sins of this woman who had sexually sinned. Now, for those of you who you know, may know your Bible a little bit better, you'd be like, Dale, but what about unclean animals? Because they talk about that in Leviticus too. Well, yeah, but remember, Luke also wrote Acts. And, and Luke, in, he records in Acts 10, chapter 15, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. In, in talking about all of these unclean animals. And Luke's point in all of that is that something major has changed with the coming of Jesus. In the Old Testament, a person was in one of three states. When you look at the Old Testament, there was one of three states that a person existed in. They were either unclean, clean, or holy. Now, I'll be honest with you and tell you that I've spent most of my life thinking that there were only two states of existence taught in the Old Testament. And that would have been clean and unclean. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there, there are instead three states in which a human being can exist. And this has been particularly helpful for me to understand when helping abuse victims that, that often feel unclean because of the actions of others. And the idea of ever being clean is hard for them to ever wrap their mind around. But my goal now is to help them see it's not to help them see themselves as clean, but my goal is to help them to see themselves as holy. You see, the difference is huge and life-changing. A person must work to make themselves clean. There were all of these things they had to do, and then also all of these things they had not to do to go from a clean, an unclean state to a clean state. But holiness, holiness comes from being chosen and set apart. And this is a big change that Luke is getting at in the gospel. In the Old Testament, one must go through all of these things to become clean. Then and only then could they be set apart and made holy to have communion with God. The, the trouble, as Leviticus points out, is that uncleanliness is contagious. In the Old Testament, if you were clean... You could have done everything right to make yourself clean, but by the simple touch of an unclean person in the street, you became unclean. So you've done everything right, you're on your way to the temple, and a woman just brushes up against you who has an issue of blood. And now all of a sudden, her uncleanness is contagious, and it has now spread to you. Now what happens when a woman of with well, the discharge of blood, touches Jesus, right? Jesus comes along, God and man, who is perfectly holy, having never sinned. Jesus' holiness is now the thing that is contagious. 
This is a dramatic reversal. So Luke records example after example of things in the Old Covenant that would have been labeled as unclean and not to be touched. And what do we find Jesus doing? He reached out and he touched them. He could have just spoke it, but no, he made a point to reach out and touch these people to show us something has changed. They had been made clean through his holiness. In Leviticus 26, we are told that if Israel walked with God, and this is how I'm tying this back into Ephesians 5, okay? So we are called to walk with God. And in Leviticus 26, God told Israel that, that if you walk with me, if you walk with me in my laws, things would go well for you. And if you don't walk in my laws, things will go bad for you. Now, if you know much about the history of Israel, you know that they continually walked away from God and his law. So along comes Jesus, and what does he do? Well, the Bible tells us he fulfills the law, meaning that when we put our faith in him rather than in ourselves, we are then made holy. Not because we had to jump through a bunch of hoops, no, because he lived the life perfectly. He fulfilled it perfectly for us so that we can now be holy like he is holy. We, we are now, as Christians, in a third state of existence. Our identity is no longer tied to being clean or unclean. That doesn't matter, in a sense, to us anymore. Instead, we have been given this new identity in Christ. And in Ephesians, we've been looking at the, the life of a community of faith as defined by Paul, a community that has been transformed by Jesus Christ and being in him, right? That, that's something we've heard over and over and over. We are in him. Paul's driving home, this is where our identity should lie, in him. Whose position is, is, in standing is defined by the great reality that Christ is the firstborn of a new humanity, Paul says. And if the Spirit of God dwells within you, then you are a part of this new, holy humanity. And the problem is that our position in Christ doesn't always work itself out in how we live for Christ, does it? Remember, we've talked about this several times. There are the theological truths that Paul is saying, now live like that. Right? Or, or fight for that. Because just because we know a theological truth, it doesn't mean it just automatically works in our life. Most of the time, how we live is directly affected by how we identify ourselves. So as we continue to deal with Christian behavior, I want to make sure we are being motivated by our new identity as being holy and set apart. The good news this morning is that the way in which God calls us to live is one of freedom, not bondage. When we are living out our new identity as holy, we will see this to be true. But if we're trying to live out of our old identity, then anytime we sin, the danger is that we let that sin define us and then enslave us. We will, we will see ourselves stuck in a state of uncleanliness that, that we can't break free from. When we're motivated by fear and shame, we will always fail in the long run. And in fact, if, if, if that's, uh, is that when we utilize fear to motivate obedience, what it generally does is it creates such a distaste toward the thing which it is actually meant to set us free from. That it can actually destroy a person's walk if we do not understand that God's commandments that he sets upon our lives as actually intended to create the most amount of freedom for us. In other words, we, when we look at what God has said for us to do, if we are working out of ourselves, we are going to see those as restrictions. But when we are working out of our new identity as being holy, we see that what God has put as parameters in our lives are there to help us have the most amount of freedom humanly possible. 
And God's parameters are driven by his insatiable love for us. It's it's only when we are motivated by God's love that we'll be able to truly live out our true identity as God's holy people. Paul's motivation here is is not to to be prudish and use some scare tactics, right? When we come to passages like this, it's very easy to just turn this into a list of thou shalt and thou shalt not. Clean versus unclean. But it's important to approach this text from the position of holiness, from our new identity in Christ. And then our minds will be changed to see this as God's good will for us, not his restriction, and I want to take all the joy out of life for these Christians. I want to make them miserable. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to do the exact opposite. What Paul is saying is, I'm after your joy, not your sorrow. I want to create these rules by which you can live in the fullest freedom that God has made available to you. Because only as we come under the lordship of Jesus are we going to be truly free. And Paul has spent the whole beginning of Ephesians trying to establish that very fact. That Christ is the source of our peace and our freedom and our joy. And when we walk outside of these parameters, he sets, we find ourselves enslaved, not free. Paul, like a loving father, is trying to protect the church that he loves from falling back into the same bondage that God has freed them from, just like he did the Israelites. Leviticus 26, 13, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of of your yoke and made you walk erect. God is the one who sets us free. And God is the one that wants to keep us free. So God gives these parameters, not, not just to create rules for his people, but to create a safe place where we could be in covenant relationship with him to produce faith and dependence upon him. I want you to see this this morning as we read our text that Paul is going to encourage three things. First, he's going to remind the church and us of our position in Christ, that we are loved children. Therefore, we should walk in the way of love. So the first thing he's going to remind us of is that we are loved children this morning. Second, that we are a holy people. Therefore, we should be holy, right? If we are a holy people, then we should be holy. Third, that we are children of light. Therefore, we should be motivated to walk in the light. It's important to notice that with every position that he gives us here, there's a corresponding behavior or responsibility on our part. And remember, he's not trying to motivate us by fear. Paul says in in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Again, right, he's identifying us as his loved children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Paul wants us to learn this morning how to function under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. He who empowers us, fills us with his love, and gives us the self-control to live differently, to imitate a new king, King Jesus, to people that are still enslaved to sin, so that they might see King Jesus and the goodness and the freedom that he offers. But the trouble with freedom is that the more we experience it, the more possibility for us to get off track, right? So because of that reality, God has given us parameters to help us maintain our freedom. 
This is the exact same thing a parent does, right? If those of you who are parents, when our kids are small, we set very strict boundaries for them. Why? Because we, we hate them. We don't want them to have fun. We don't want them to enjoy life. No, because we want to keep them safe. And we know if we give them too much freedom when they're small, that the odds and the risk of, of damaging themselves are higher, right? Now, you know, some of you have kids like me, and it didn't matter how strict you made it, they still found the electrical outlet, right? I mean, it just happens. But, but, a, but that's what a loving family is doing, right? They're, they're, they're trying to create parameters to keep the children safe, to protect them, because that's one of the jobs of a parent, is to protect their children. But as they get older, what do we do? We give them more freedom, right? We should. <laughs> Maybe I should back up. We should give them more freedom. Because that's also our responsibility as parents, to help them grow into adults. I say all the time, I want my kids to fail while they're at home. Because there's a safety net there that will catch them. But we, we live in a generation with parents who think we should never let our kids fail. And one of the reasons we have such a high, high, high rate of drug abuse and suicide is because they leave that perfectly safe nest and they fall to the ground and hit their face. And they go, it shouldn't be this hard. Let me find an easy fix. Let your kids fail at home. Give them that independence. As they grow a little older, give them a little bit more independence. Teach them. Use that lessons. That's, that's exactly what God does to us. Right? He, he wants us to grow in our independence, to grow in our freedom. And he does so by putting parameters in our lives to keep us safe. So that's a lot of setup for Ephesians chapter 5. Well, let me read our passage to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, sexually immorality, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, word, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul begins our passage this morning by saying, You are loved children. So walk in that love that you are being loved with. We are, we are loved. Let, take a second and just let that sink in for a moment. We are loved children of God. You are chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, your position and your purchase was bought by His blood. And it was brought about by His initiative. God has chosen to love you even in your sin. Even while you were an enemy, it says, God loved you. Right? For, for God so loved the world that He what? He gave. 
Now that we have accepted, and I hope this morning that you have accepted God's gift, are we going to, to, to follow his example? That, that's what Paul is asking. Is are, are we going to follow what God has done? Right? God loves, therefore God what? Gives. Is that pattern the same in our lives? We, we see the example here given in this passage. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The very thing that you have received into your life, the example of his self-giving love. And this is what we are called to when we are children of God. So we must act as children of God and function in God's love. God's love is the only thing that we can function in because every aspect of Christian life is pure grace. God's sovereign freedom to move into our broken lives and love us and transform us and sanctify us and to give us His Spirit. And we respond, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And that submission opens you up to the freedom that God places inside of you. And now he wants you to live in that, that freedom, reflecting that same love to others. Paul calls us to dependence upon Christ. That, that's more than just imitation of Christ. That's a part of it, but, but there's a dependence he is calling us to. And that's what we need to understand this morning. The disciples tried to imitate Jesus, didn't they? Throughout his entire earthly ministry, and they were absolute failures. They did not succeed as apostles until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Their lives while Jesus was on earth was probably best described as ye of little faith, right? But when they received the Spirit of Christ, then they were able to do the work of Christ. We need to remember that though we are a redeemed community of sinners, we are not co-saviors with Jesus. We are called to share his saving work to the world. We are not called to do the saving work. That is something he has done. So, so we're not imitating in that sense, but there is a dependence upon what he has done. And when we lean into that dependence, then out of that flows the love of God. So how do we follow Jesus' example? Paul says here we are to walk in the way of love. And I love the metaphor of walking that Paul uses in Ephesians and elsewhere in his writings. The reason I love this metaphor is because it's such a, a vivid picture of what we're called to do in the Christian life. You see, walking in Scripture is always meant to be something done in fellowship with another. It's a form of communion with another. The first time we see the word walk in the Scripture is in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when our first parents have fallen. They've gone into hiding and God has heard walking in the cool of the day. He's not walking away from them. He's walking toward them. He's not shaking his head in shame and disappointment and turning his back on them and walking away. No, he's, he's pressing in. He's walking directly toward them, directly toward their sin, towards their, their brokenness. And we see God moving toward them in love, calling out, Adam, <laughs> What have you done? Why are you hiding? God's walk is a walk that is calling us into communion with himself. And this is why I think this metaphor is so genius. Have you ever tried to walk with someone and, and hold their hand that walks slower or faster than you? It's annoying, right? It just, it's just it feels weird. It's like, do I need to speed up? Do you need to slow down, right? There, there, there's this beautiful picture, I think, here, because it is only when we are in sync that that is enjoyable, right? If they're walking on ahead of us, we're not fellowshipping and having communion with them. If they're behind us, we're not having fellowship and communion with them. It is, it is only when we are in sync, completely dependent upon one another to set the pace and the rhythm. And God is calling us to do something. He says, Walk with me. Jesus says, what? Follow me. 
He doesn't say, sit there, right? I'll save you, and now you sit there. He says, no, get up and follow me. Salvation makes a demand upon us. It calls us to do something, and God says, walk with me. God wants us to be covenant partners with him. All throughout Scripture, we have covenant after covenant after covenant. And and every time we see failure, failure, failure. And so God sends Jesus to fulfill the covenant so that there would not be a failure this time. And we are now called through Jesus to become a covenant partner with him. Paul says we need to walk. In order to walk with him, we've got to walk like him. We've got to match his stride. We've got to match his pace. Right? That, that, that's what Paul is calling us to do here. Well, what are we matching? Specifically, his love. His self-giving love for people. And when we do that, we will love like him. Now, it's important to pause here for a moment and define what love means. Unfortunately, the world has tried their best to redefine the word love into a plethora of other things. Uh, for many, love is just a feeling that comes and goes, right? It's, it's like a ditch you fall into and then you can climb out of, right? It's, it's, we, we fell in love and just as easily we can fall out of love. But love from the perspective of Scripture is always a choice. It's a choice. God's decision initiated out of God himself, not driven by us, God in his sovereignty had the freedom to choose to love you even in your sin. We see that in the sacrificial, self-giving humiliation of his son Jesus on the cross. But our salvation is not just simply God's humiliation, it's also man's exaltation. That is what God has done for us. This is the kind of love that we are called to walk. You see, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have been elevated. We, we can now become the sons and daughters of God. Once we were enemies, but now, because of Christ, not because of anything we've done, we have been exalted to the position of sons and daughters of God. This is the kind of love that we are called to walk. As we walk, we lay down ourselves to reflect God's love for us. But this is something that has come out of our identity in Christ. It has to come out of that. It's not something we can do on our own. And so this is Paul's first point. You are loved children, so walk in love. Second, Paul says you are holy, so be Holy, look at verse 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Once again, our holiness, Paul has shown us, is a direct gift of Christ's holiness in our lives. But, but what is that holiness? Because I, I think many of us confuse holiness with the concept of being clean and unclean from sin. If that is the case, then holiness is defined by us sinning less, is it not? That, that's, if, if, if we're connecting the idea of holiness with clean versus unclean, and we're not seeing it as a completely third different category, that, that means holiness is we sin less. And many people define it that way, right? They, they see, oh, you're sinning, you've sinned, you're not holy, right? But that's not what holiness is. In Scripture, holiness is not separated from sin. Holiness is dedicated to God. It's a dedication. It's not a measure, Another way to say it is it's not quantitative, it's qualitative. It's not the little things that we do or don't do. That's not what defines holiness. 
It is completely defined by a whole surrender to God's authority. Total dedication to its wholeness. I love how one person put it. God's judgment on our life is not going to be based upon the perimeter of our lives. It's going to be based on the center of our lives. Did you or did you not have the new heart? Because those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are those who are born again. Remember Ezekiel 36, I will remove your heart of stone. It's God's work. In other words, I will remove that heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new spirit. He gives us a new life in which we now live from. He gives us a new center. It's not about the edges. It's not about the perimeter. It's about the center. The center is now different. And that becomes the peace by which God judges humanity. Our center. Did you have or did you not have life? And so... On the perimeters of our lives, there are going to be sins. There are going to be sins that break into our lives on the perimeter of our lives. Because we live in a sin-filled world with sinful people, and we are still affected by the fall. So that's a reality, that the perimeter of our life, there will still be sin until the day we die. But the more we learn to function by faith, and trust in that new identity, that new center, the more it will work itself out to the perimeters. That's the beauty about our circumference because I want to free you up right now. There's some of you right now that you're here and you struggle with a tremendous amount of guilt because you keep sinning, you keep failing in some area of your life. Maybe you're like a woman that just looked at something that she shouldn't have looked at or thought a thought that she shouldn't have thought. And because of that, you feel like God will never forgive you. And that proves that you were never good enough to be a believer because you keep failing on the perimeter. The good news to you this morning is that if your guilt is overriding your life, then what that is proving is you actually do have a new center a new identity, a new heart. Here's the thing. I I talk to people all the time and they have absolutely no problem with their sin. People that are, are not believers have no problem with their sin. They don't walk around feeling guilty about their sin. In fact, I know many people who glory in their sin. In this day and age, many people find their identity in their sin. So what do, I, what do I mean when I say your guilt is also exposing that you haven't learned to walk or to work out that new identity? Because that's, that's one of the things that it's exposing. Whenever that guilt is, is rising up in your life, one, it's showing that you have a new sinner, but two, it's also exposing that you haven't learned to work out of that new identity. If you're driven by guilt, that's allowing the spiritual battle to be lost before it even begins. Let me explain Satan's strategy to you really simply. First, he tells you, oh yeah, you can do that. It's no big deal. God will forgive you, right? He plays on cheap grace. And then once you've done it, he switches his tune to costly grace by telling you that God will never forgive you for that. He'll never forgive you. Surely you're not one of his. You wouldn't have done that if you were. But see, here's the thing. In a Christian's life, Satan can only challenge you on the perimeter. That's it. He can only challenge you on the perimeter of your life. But that's not what really matters. What really matters is what is your identity. That is what you're going to be judged by. Not the perimeter of your life, but by the center of your life. What's your position? Are you not a new creature in Christ? And if you are, then you've got to learn to work from that perspective. And that requires faith. It requires a dependence upon Christ and what He has done. Not what I have or have not done. 
And so here he is trying to help us understand holiness. Listen, if you are a holy people, then you need to live like you are holy. There needs to be a corresponding reality in the way in which you live it out practically in your life. And so your holiness, you are holy because Christ is holy and you are in Christ and that holiness is given to us. And so then we share in an inheritance that makes us a holy people. And so that holiness is simply we are now dedicated to a new master. So as holy people, we need to look at the opposite of holy living. And that's what Paul is going to do here. He's going to show us we need to be holy, but let me show you what holiness is not. And sometimes that's helpful for us to see the opposite of something. Because here Paul wants us to understand that the pressure of the world can cause us to forget that we have a new center. And instead, we allow our lives to be shaped by our perimeter rather than our center. When we give into the world, we are allowing our perimeter to affect our center, or at least hide it from us. He's showing us that we, are, we were once a child of disobedience under the wrath of God. This is where we all start. And why would we want to go back there? Because Jesus has already absorbed the wrath for that. It's, it's like a dog returning to his vomit. There's just no place for that in a believer's life. And he loves them so much that he doesn't want to see them returning into that bondage. He longs for them to experience the victory that's already theirs. And so he says, let there be no sexual immorality because sexual immorality belongs to the kingdom of the world. It's distinctive as a love that only takes. It's a self-centered love. That's what sexual immorality is. It's I want what I want when I want how I want it. Now, for Paul's listeners, they knew exactly what he meant. He did not have to go into a long laundry list of examples. Because as soon as he said these words, they were like, oh yeah, we, we know what that is. So he didn't, he didn't elaborate and give us examples. But again, our culture has sought to redefine words. That's been their goal. Let's redefine the words so that things that we used to say were sexually immoral, immoral those are just normal now, right? So, so we have to break it down and give some examples. So let me, let me break it down for you as simply as I can. And I know that this flies in the face of our culture that we live in. But sexual immorality is any and all sexual interactions outside of God's good design of marriage between one woman and one man. It's interesting, I was thinking about that sentence, how over the years we've had to add more and more words to that sentence. Used to, you could just say, God's good design between a marriage. Then we had to say between a man and a woman. Then we, now we have to say between one man and one woman. That's, that's the culture that we live in, folks. But, but God is calling us to something different. Jesus even confirms this in Matthew 19.5. Now, some of you may be thinking this sounds archaic or we've come a long way in our modern society and maybe this even offends you. But let me simply say this. Counseling with couples and individuals over the last 15 years, I have seen nothing, nothing positive come from the disconnection of sex and marital commitment. Nothing. What I have seen is countless cases of abuse, victimization, fatherless children, motherless children, Drug addiction, murdering of innocent lives, depression, anxiety, and suicide. It has left a sea of heartbreak and destroyed relationships. God's heart for us is not to take away our pleasure and to make us miserable. God, after all, created sex. Sex is a beautiful gift he created within the covenantal bonds of marriage. Satan, our enemy, though, he's not capable of creating any new pleasures. So here, here's, again, his, his scheme and plan. He is good at getting us to take God's good pleasures and using them in the wrong way or using them at the wrong time with the wrong or in the wrong place. And you see, as holy people, Paul is saying, I know you are dedicated now to God. Why would you dedicate your body, which is the temple of God, to that which brings destruction and heartbreak? 
God loves you and he wants to set you free from all of that. I don't know about you, but that list of things that I've seen is not something I want in my life. I want the freedom that comes from following God and being holy as he is holy. And this is this reality is that some of you are thinking to yourself now, well, you know, that's, that's not for me because maybe you found ways to excuse the sexual immorality in your life. But if you don't draw from that center you have in Christ, you will fail. And sadly, I see that so many times as people get frustrated trying to accomplish in the flesh, on the perimeters, what can only be done through the Spirit in the center. And eventually they just give up and they just drift away from Christ. Either saying that, you know, in their minds that the Christian life just didn't work for them or it was just too hard. He goes on to say, because you are holy people and you need to live holy, not only should you not be sexually immoral, but you need to also, but you need also to not allow any impurity in your life. And this word impurity is where we get the word for cleanliness, that which is clean or unclean. And impurity really is another mark of the kingdom of this world. For it's revelation of incompleteness, driven by a darkness from within. Because the opposite of impurity is purity. Jesus says the kingdom of God, one of the, the marks of the kingdom of God is a pure heart. And a pure heart, once again, is not sinless, it's wholeness. Or complete dedication to the pure of heart. Our hearts that are wholly dedicated to Christ. The question is, are you holy? Are you wholly given to Christ? The impure person is a person who is divided, whose affections are scattered all over the place. And once again... Paul is saying, that's not who you are. Jesus is saying, don't forget who you are. Paul then goes on to say, greed. And this greed is a fascinating type of idolatry that we see. A greed that's controlling lives all around us. If we're honest, it's controlled us at some point. It's controlling most of us at any given point in time. And many people only think of greed in terms of being stingy with our money. But greed is a self-centered selfishness that treats life as something that is meant to serve you. One author said of greed that it is one step further than existentialism, which is the fear of having died, having only loved oneself. And I think that that's an accurate picture of the age in which we live. We live in a very selfish, self-centered age that's driven by the idea that everything I have is mine and I will keep it for myself. But this idolatry, this is idolatry. It's the complete opposite of grace. For grace is God's generosity towards us. We are objects of his free grace and are meant to function in that grace. And if we function in greed, what we are saying is when someone is in need, you have all sorts of excuses in your minds of why you will not do that. Why you will not help them. And one of the key ones is you will say to yourself, yeah, I don't have the time. But is it that you don't have the time or is it that you refuse to give up your time? Because the thing is that you now have a new center. <laughs> you have a new master and indeed, you now belong to Jesus. And Jesus says, your time is actually my time. Your money is actually my money. Your gifts are actually my gifts. He doesn't say, oh, you, you want me to save you from hell, but you keep your time, your money, your resources, your, you know, for yourself and do what you want, fine. That's, that's not what he says. That's not what he says to the rich young ruler. He basically gets to the heart of what was controlling his life. His own God, his own personal idol. And he says, go and give away everything you have. Give it to the poor. Pick up your cross. Follow me. The reason he said that to him is because greed was at the center of this man's heart. This was his God. 
And Jesus doesn't do competing gods. He will not be God amongst gods in our lives. He will be king of kings and lord of lords or nothing. And see, he comes to us and he says, this is mine. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, greed is the only reason we don't serve in the local church. We don't want to give up our Sundays to serve others in our community. We enjoy worship and service uh, and the service, and we, we don't want to be bothered with other obligations. We will even craft all kinds of theological reasons to justify why we can't serve in different areas. We don't want to open up our, our houses to others because that is our safe space. That's where I feel safe. I don't want to bring people in here. It's greed. And yet we come to church on Sunday and we ask Jesus, give us a life that will actually matter for the kingdom and for your gospel. And then we wonder why we never seem to have that kind of life. Think about how greed affects our finances. If we're honest, money controls most of us to some degree or another. And at this point, some of you may object and say, but Dale, uh, money can't control me because I don't have any. (laughs) But I would argue, for you, it's the money you intend to have that is driving you. And in reality, whether it's the money you have or the money you intend to have, that is the reality that has you. But either way, it's a false God. It's allowing something to be your identity, something to be driving you. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you give? Are you withholding that part of your life? Because I'm pretty sure that's not what the Scripture calls us to do. And I'm not speaking to those of you who are new believers You've never been taught about giving. I'm, I'm talking about talking to those who have been here long enough to know better. We know that what, what you have belongs to Christ. And Paul is saying here, as a holy people, that's not how it should go. We shouldn't be controlled by greed. And then he says, no obscenity, no foolish talk or coarse joking. Because this, again, is a mark of the world and not of Christ. The fact is that everything about us should be different. Even our speech should be different. Our speech should be life-giving and not life-taking. That's the point that Paul is trying to make here with these words that he's chosen. Does your speech bring life or does it bring death to those who are around you? If you're curious of how to tell the difference, here's a tip. Think about how many people consistently ask you for your advice. Now, think of how many people have asked for your advice only once. If the latter is more the case, you probably are using your speech to bring death and not life. James says the tongue is an incredible force and has the ability to set an entire forest on fire in one moment. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people use their tongues. They don't think before they speak. They just speak. And it is hurtful. And life-taking. And I have known so many men and women in the church that have never said a cuss word in their life, but they speak the most deathly speech I've ever heard. And they would say, no, we're fine. We're good with this verse because we don't say any of the bad words. But when in reality, the words they do say cut to the bone and bring death. They don't bring life. And I'm sure this happens almost every Sunday to some of you. We worship God with our lips, and then we leave out of this building, and we start cursing others. Maybe it's on the drive home from church, or on the drive to your way to lunch. Maybe it's at the restaurant when the busy server failed to remember your every command. How many times have you gone to church worshiping Jesus, and then this happens to you? And you're like, I'm sorry, Jesus. We, we know in that moment we shouldn't have done that. Jesus wants control over every part of our lives, including when you drive your car or when you're at a restaurant. That is the gospel itself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is how powerful our speech is, right? When we speak the gospel, that brings and gives life. That's how powerful our words are. Every single one of you has come to Christ because someone has spoke the gospel to you at some point. 
You experience salvation because you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. One pastor, I like, said it this way, that sin leaves the body through the mouth. It also seems to go into the body through the mouth. In other words, when we confess and we repent, it leaves our body. But when we are speaking hatefully to others, speaking words of death, it's entering our body. Our speech needs to be life-giving, not destructive and life-taking. And I think we need to understand that. Notice then, he says this, and this is so interesting. Instead of speaking this wor- these words, be thankful. Right? That, that's the opposite to Paul. So don't be grumbling and complaining about what you do or don't have. Be thankful. And he's going to close the chapter later on. We'll see this with speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you see here that our holiness is directly connected as a matter of our worship. It's a matter of worship. Our words are a matter of worship. Our sanctity grows unconsciously from our worship of Jesus. And then look at this. I love this. This the last part. Third, we are children of light. You are the light of the Lord, so live as children of light. Verses 8 through 14. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul wants us to understand that as we dedicate ourselves to God, that that we have already put ourselves under his judgment and our sin has been fully judged by Jesus and that judgment has been absorbed by him. And so to go back to that which has already been judged on our part is just counterintuitive. It's counter-gospel. In fact, I would even say it's anti-gospel. And so here he says, you were once in darkness. Well, why would you go back to darkness? What is darkness? Think about it. Darkness is nothingness. That's what darkness is. If you look up the definition of darkness, darkness is is not made up of anything. It is merely the absence of something significant. Light. Now, I'm no scientist, but light actually is something. Darkness is nothing. You are not darkness. You are children of light. You are not children of nothing. You are children of something. So why would you want to go back to being a child of nothing? Jesus is the source of our light. And he said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. And he says, let your light shine so before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And he says, this is the reality that fruit grows when we are in the light. There is no such plant... No such thing that grows, no such plant in this world that grows without light. There's no exception to that. And this is the reality. Is that any fruit we bear, Jesus said, is because I am the vine and you are the branches. He says, just as a branch does not bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, right? You don't don't walk out into the field and pick up a branch that's fallen off and expect it to grow fruit, do you? No, it's only the the one that is still attached. He says, just as a branch does not bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, if you do not abide in me, you will not bear fruit. This is key, you guys, to the Christian life. How do I live out this life of Christ this morning? It's about companionship. It's about communion. We're chosen in him. We must remain in him. Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in my love. That just means remain with me. Stay close to me. How do we do that? Jesus is the living word. 
So his written word is a direct pointer to him, the living word. When we stay in scriptures and we stay in community because we are a body of people who are embodied by his spirit, Christ becomes known when we spend time together in community. When we come out of hiding and into the light, which means that we are honest, we are transparent, we are real. We are not talking about other people's sin when we're sitting around in small group. We're talking about our sin. We're making it personal. We're being real. We're not hiding our sins, but we are revealing the realities of our own brokenness. And in doing so, it's a powerful thing. He says, find out what pleases the Lord. And what pleases the Lord is not trying to accomplish what can only be done by the Spirit. Romans 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's just not possible. But what pleases God is when God's people live Spirit-filled lives. And the way that we do that is by faith. And this is a work of God. And so the reality is that we're connected close to Jesus. People living in the light. And that is when fruit begins to produce in our lives. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. He didn't say, you will know you're a tree by your fruit. That's an important difference. What he's saying is that you will know each other by each other's fruit. But we are not called to look at our own fruitfulness. We are called to look at one another in self-surrender. And so this is the, the thing have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This is not you and I going around pointing out each other's garbage all the time. Like, you did that, or man, look, you were living in darkness there. No, that's not what we are to do. To expose is what Paul does in the first part of what we looked at. It's saying, this is how the world lives. This is how we lay out how we ought to now live in Christ because God loves you. And that exposure is always done in graciousness. It's like Jesus. He exposes the feet of the disciples so that he can wash them. He exposes himself to their blame, their hurt, and their sin. And so this is what we are to do when we expose one another. It's not for humiliation. It's in grace and love. Jesus said, before you take, before you take that little tiny speck out of your brother's eye, you need to learn how to take the log out of your own eye first. Why does he say that? Because he doesn't want you to tell the brother to take the speck out? No. Because anyone who's taken a log out of their eye knows how bad it hurts. Which means they will be very gentle with others when they try to help them take that speck out of their eye. Because they understand the pain. And I think that's the key as a community of faith. We need to learn how to live in the light with one another. And when you live in the light, light reveals, it illuminates, it shows what's in the darkness. And that's a terrifying thing. We don't like to be exposed. But as children of life, we ha- or light, we have no other option. Why would we go back to nothingness when we have everything in Jesus? And so he ends this. He says, have nothing to do with these fruitless deeds, but rather expose them. This is not going around pointing it out at the world. This is about how we deal with one another in the community of faith. Paul is writing this letter to the church. He's not writing this as an indictment to the world. He's writing it to the church and how we are to act within the church. So he says, don't be known by what they do. What you once did. Be known by what Jesus does. And then he says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And here's where I want us to end and just be thinking on this as we enter into communion. What does that mean? That which becomes exposed, that which becomes visible becomes light. And this reveals God's incredible redemptive creative power to take that which is broken, that which is nothing, that which is some, and make it out of something something that is beautiful. And he takes your broken, black, dark parts of your life and he can weave them into a story of love and light that makes them serve his purposes. This is a powerful reality in the gospel. That he can take the ways that you fail him every day on the perimeter 
And as you surrender and confess and come into the light, you confess. But as he exposes those areas of darkness in your heart and you give them to him in confession, we confess not only to him but to one another in our community of faith. What God does is he cleanses and redeems us. Remember, in the New Testament, God's holiness is the contagious thing. When you bring something out of the dark into the light, God can cleanse it and purify it through confession and repentance. 